Welcome to B2B Revenue Leaders. I'm your host, Dustin Tizik. This episode is brought to you by Testimonial Hero. Testimonial Hero enables you to close more deals faster with strategic video testimonials. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jen Allen Knuth, who leads community growth at Lavender. We chat about how to overcome the status quo by focusing on the cost of inaction, some sales emails mistakes that we've both made throughout our career, and what's new for Lavender when it comes to community building. Hey, Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to have the conversation. Um, you know, we're going to be focusing on a little bit on status quo, cost of inaction, cold email, how to stand out. We're probably going to bounce around a bit, but let's start out with, you know, the status quo side, because personally, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but from my experience here managing a sales team, it's more frustrating than ever dealing with the status quo because budgets are cut. People are afraid to spend money, rightfully so. Um, so yeah, what have you seen, you know, in your world changing out there with clients, companies you advise, all of that? Yeah. So I think what has been really tough is just how quickly we went from we got money to burn and let's spend it and let's buy all the fun toys to like, yeah. wow, hold up, we're laying people off and every expense is being looked at and scrutinized. And I think it's just been to to be fair for sellers that are earlier in their careers and went from one extreme to another. I empathize with that a lot, right? Like I was selling during 08, 09. And prior to that, it was like, in many ways, I was probably order taking more than I was selling. And I think we saw the same thing happening. And so when we talk about status quo, I think the larger problem is many of us sellers grew up learning that how you sell is by showing someone how much better your solution is, whether it's a product or service, doesn't matter. Like here's this beautiful world you will live in if you just buy this thing. And when people have money to spend, that's a t- that's a great story to tell. But when people are sitting there saying, look, we've got problems left and right. We've got fires all over the place. I have to tolerate good enough because I cannot yeah. afford to put everything out. We just don't have the money or the budget to do it. And so that story of this is how much better your life will be is completely ineffective when someone is sitting there agreeing with you saying, you're right, it would be better but I got to settle for good enough. So I think that's the problem largely is we went from one extreme to another. And I don't know that in many cases, sellers or marketers or anyone on like GTM teams have been really deeply trained and immersed in how much different the motion is when you go from, from one extreme to another. For sure. Like what we've been saying here kind of internally is, you know, it's been summer for a while and now winter is coming and it's here. (laughs) It's it's a lot harder. So you have to I like the point you made there, though, where things are going well, all people are thinking is, how do I grow? How do I do more? When things are going really crappy, they're thinking, how do I stay afloat? How do I keep my job? You know, they're more worried about getting rid of the pain and the worries. So is that kind of your suggestion there to flip it on its head and, you know, focus about what they're going to miss out on instead of, you know, what the future could be? Yeah, to some extent, right? Like, so we talk a lot about like FOMO, right? There's a there's a FOMO factor at play for sure. But I would say it's even a level deeper than that, right? So one of the things we as humans do is we make stupid decisions all day long, every day, right? Because we neglect to confront what is the cost of that decision. So there's an analogy I use all the time, like when I just recently got married and leading up to getting married, I kept setting my alarm for five in the morning to get out of bed and go to the gym, right? Because I was getting pictures taken and you know all my closest friends and family are gonna be there. I wanna look my best. But every morning I would get up I'd hear that alarm go off and I would hit it and snooze it and then turn it off, Mm -hmm. right? Because ultimately the conversation I wasn't having with myself was I was okay with how I looked. It wasn't my best, but good enough was good enough. 
And the analogy I use is if I had gone to the doctor in the months leading up to my wedding and the doctor said, Jen, if you don't go get more cardiovascular activity, like you're at really high risk for a heart attack, you might not make it to your wedding. That would have completely changed my outlook on going to the gym because all of a sudden now it's not gym or no gym, or I'm always going to pick no gym. It is gym or heart attack. And that's what I mean by when we're sellers, we have to show our customers, what is that heart attack moment? And I'm not talking about like fear mongering, but in many cases we do things because we think it's cheap, it's efficient, it's good enough. As sellers, we have to expose buyers to what is that underappreciated cost risk where good enough is actually costing you way more than you think. Like that's the motion that I think of when we're we're competing against status quo. Yeah. And I think, you know, being someone with a marketing background now kind of doing both and a sales background. Um, to me, that comes down to a bit of a positioning thing. So it's not just sales. You know, you need, you've kind of done the opposite, right? Like you're in a sales role. Now you're kind of in a marketing role. Um, <laughs> but it really comes down to that positioning and having that message and knowing that. Because I think for a lot of sellers, like you said, if they're new, if it's an SDR, for example, and they're a year in out of college, they just don't have the experience to figure that out. Like I've been doing this for a while and it's still hard and I get it wrong half the time, right? So how would you suggest, you know, go-to-market teams really come together to discover what their customers might be missing out on? I love this question. And I'm so glad you raised that point because it's not the blame game, right? It's like, oh, SDRs just don't know. It's like we as a company probably don't know it. What is, if we, we sit around a table and we get all of our leaders and our frontline managers together and we say, why is it that someone stops settling for good enough and chooses us? Uh, Rarely do we actually know the answer to that. And I can say that because I would do that exercise with a lot of companies when I was at Challenger. So I think for most organizations, it's simply sitting down together and saying, let's forget the finger pointing. Can we honestly say we know what triggers make someone go from I'm comfortable with status quo to I'm suddenly uncomfortable? And if we don't know the answer, like acknowledging that is a good thing, right? Because it means Mm -hmm. we can move towards knowing the answer. Go to your customers, talk to your customers and say, what was that moment? What was that trigger event where you suddenly realized that it was intolerable to keep doing things the way that they were? And then start pattern recognizing, right? Like, do we hear some answers more than others? And I remember when I used to do this in, um, when I was selling, like it was always shocking. It was never the things I thought it was going to be. Like, yeah. I thought it was going to be like, okay, okay, we do a reorg and now we're going to invest in sales training. No, in many cases, they're like, we just did a major change. We're not going to change something else. And so it's, it, I think it's important to really test some of those assumptions because then in turn, you could have your marketers and your salespeople now knowing what to hunt and look for in terms of cues from your customers, actions that they might be taking, decisions they be, might be making that are based in reality, not in our like perceptions. Yeah. And I like the customer research component because maybe I harp on this too much, but like the whole marketing and sales staying connected side, because I think both have value and often both go too far to the extreme. So maybe I'm going off topic here on market research, but I find marketers are often too, as a marketer, I feel like I can say this, we're too, almost too structured. Like we have our plan. It doesn't deviate where salespeople have a human conversation, but marketers write it off as anecdotal because, you know, there's no data potentially, although with Gong and Wingman and you know, all that sort of stuff you can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like the customer research piece and the not assuming. Like I am my target market in my current company. We sell to B2B marketers. Half my assumptions are still wrong after I hear <laughs> the customer feedback because I am not every marketer, right? Yes. So I think that's a huge point. 
So let's say, you know, walk me through, you've collected the data, you know what these are. Now the trick is getting everyone to tell the same story. Having worked at Challenger and, you know, done a lot of this for many, many years, what's your plan there? Like, how do you effectively roll this out across the whole go-to-market? Yeah, I'll tell you how you don't do it. You don't bring people together for one day at an SKO and be like, this is our new message. Go have at it, right? Like (laughs) the things that I've admired the most in working with clients, it always comes down to what the managers are doing, like the frontline managers. We can do whatever we want at the top. And if if the managers are not bought in hearts and mind, it really just, it candidly does not matter. They'll they'll Mm -hmm. tell you we're doing the right things just to get you off their backs. Um, what I love that I've seen, so one example was a company I was working with. They were in the CPG space, but they were selling to businesses, so still B2B sale. They were rolling out a new message. And what they would do is every Friday, they would have sellers bring two or three stuck opportunities or big target opportunities they wanted to break into. And then they would teach the sellers in the initial rollout, here are the cues that you want to look for, the triggers you want to look for that would indicate that this company may have a problem. We can't be sure, but they may have a problem that we can solve. And then in those Friday sessions, it was practicing delivering that message. I saw this, which made me think that maybe this is happening. And then did you know that when this happens, this is roughly what's going on and what that's costing you. And by virtue of practicing it with their peers, one, it always got better because there was always something that someone could add. Like, oh, I was just talking to a company in that space and this other thing on top of it is also happening. Right? That's one part. But two, it's just safe practice. Anytime we as mm-hmm. salespeople open our mouths, I still call myself a salesperson. I've got to adjust that. Anytime <laughs> as I was a salesperson that I opened my mouth, I was either making myself money or losing money. So I am inherently going to be so protective about what comes out of my mouth. If I am not sure, not confident, I'm going to default to what I feel comfortable talking about, which candidly usually is my own product, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, you've got to do a lot of reps to get people comfortable and practicing in a place where they can fail and fail freely, which leads me to the third thing, which is they would do loss analysis. We always celebrate wins, but they would actually have sellers come in and say, looking back, here's how I positioned the message or the positioning statement. And here's where I got it slightly off. So the next time you're selling to a bank that looks like this, make sure you consider that. And just being, having a culture of losing is okay. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, you know, having that both on the sales side and then passing that knowledge across the rest to go to market, whether it's marketing, customer success, anything. Um, I don't know how many good ideas I've just flat out stole from sales (laughs) as a marketer. I hear them say something on a call. I'm like, that's going on the website. Um, But oftentimes, if I wasn't listening to that call or they didn't tell me, all that gold gets lost. Um, So I like that. And I like the low risk approach as well. Because you're right, especially in this market, salespeople say they're selling to... And they have an enterprise call. They're on the call. They know it's getting recorded on Gong. They're not going to take a risk and like risk getting called out and yeah. and flagged, right? And I don't blame them. So makes sense. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I learned, so my last year at Challenger, I created the chief evangelist role. And to what you're talking about there, I think largely having someone who wasn't on either side and was yeah. like, I'm not either, like, I'm not, I'm the divorce attorney. I'm not the, the, <laughs> the you know, the wife and the husband. But having someone who is separate from that, who can just look at the situation and say, here's what I think is working over here. Here's what I think is working over here and be the messenger, try out the message in public and then take that back to the sales team. I would say that was arguably the best part. Like I could go on LinkedIn, write a problem hypothesis, get a bunch of feedback from people and then be Mm -hmm. like, hey, sellers, see how much this popped. 
This is why yeah. I want you to use it because it works and it's sparking a conversation. So it's hard to get salespeople in many cases to do that, but a lot of sellers will do it if you like if you recognize them. But if you have that evangelist role, that's a great use case for that just to try it out so it's not as much of a leap of faith. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, like you said, not a leap of faith and also low risk. You know, if it takes off, great. That post is going to live for weeks. It's going to get traction. If it falls on its face, it's gone in three hours and Who cares? no yeah. one cares. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not that important, right? No one's going to no. remember that failed post. Um, and then one topic I kind of wanted to jump to is a lot of deals I find are getting stuck right now. So initial call goes great. Everyone's super pumped. You have timeline. You think it's going to close and then poof, it just evaporates in front of your face and you never hear from those people again. Um, so any thoughts there on, given the current economy market, steps to take to actually unstick those deals and get them going again? Yeah. So one book I would highly recommend here um, is The Jolt Effect by Matt Dixon um, and Ted McKenna. So they wrote the original Challenger Sale book. They came out with this book at like the world's best timing. I was like, y'all are either mind reader, like future seers. I don't know how you managed to do this. <laughs> but essentially the whole idea is like solving for status quo is the necessary first step. You have to give someone a mm -hmm. reason to believe that they need to change. But if you drag them across the finish line, pointing backwards saying, you know, here's the cost of an action, here's the cost of an action, you will face a point of resistance because at a certain point, it's no longer about believing on the need to change. Now it is the fear of change, right? Yep. So I would see this all the time in deals. You'd get people saying, yeah, how could we tolerate this pain? It's so expensive. It's costing us this. But then there's that moment when they have to stand up and go to their CFO or their boss or whomever and say, I know we're cutting everything. I know we're like laying people off, but I want to spend a bunch of money. That is a moment of immense risk, right? Like we have to remember at the end of the day, like buyers aren't heroes. Buyers are people. They have fears and worries and concerns about their own job. And so we have to make it at that point, it's much more about lowering the risk and helping them feel very confident that this is actually a smart move on their behalf, not a risky move. And so that's why you'll see things like they talk about in the book around like, offering prescription, right? If you just sit there and the buyer's like, I don't know, I'm worried about this. And you're like, yeah, that's pretty, it's a pretty big worry. Or you're oversimplifying it and being like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. You lose trust. And then it just aggravates that fear of risk. But if you sit there and say, okay, with other companies that are in that same situation, I've seen them do evaluate A versus B. Here's the pros of A. Here's the pros of B. Here's the cons of A. Here's the cons of A. Like, where are we more fearful? Where are we more risk averse? and you're guiding them through that, that is a totally different conversation. So it just speaks to how we as sellers need to show up differently very late stage. Getting someone to believe that our service is great and valuable, great. Not enough for, to close a deal. Yeah, and I think acknowledging the problem, like you mentioned there, is, is key. Don't brush over it. Actually dig into it and don't fear it. That never works, right? Like you can only hide from your problems for, for so long. <laughs> and then, you know, the next part there is, like you said, going to a CFO who... To me, often that's a bit different business case, obviously, right? Like we sell to marketers, they believe it, they see the value. So take our instance, right? We sell testimonial videos, you can use them on LinkedIn, website, et cetera. If you take that to a CFO and say, hey, I need a bunch of customer videos, they're going to say, yeah, why? Like, what is, what is the return on investment? And you can't tie everything to dollar for dollar value, right? So how, any suggestions there on to really arm your buyer to go to the CFO? I love that question. So two things. Um, one... ROI, I feel personally, 
is a little bit like white noise now because there's not a single supplier out there who's like not throwing some like 15 time, 10 time RS. So if I'm a CFO, my eyes are rolling right in the back of my head. What I am doing is saying, let's look at how we're getting the job done today because we're getting the job done today somehow. It might not be great, but we're getting it done. And let's explore like in that instance, right? It might be, okay, well, we've got someone on our marketing team who's going out there they're going to customer you know, organizations and they're sitting there with a camera and they're coming up with all these questions and you're, you're illuminating what is the current approach for solving that problem look like. And mm-hmm. then, and this is the key right now, I think, is you're saying, but we've got this big thing over here that we as a business have identified is absolutely critical for our growth. And here's how marketing fits into that. But because we're doing this thing over here on the side in the most manual possible way we could ever do it, that actually is making this thing, which you CFO really care about, take this much longer. So our choice isn't, do we do it or not? It's, do we, do we continue doing it in a way that is preventing us from achieving the thing that we really care about? Or do we invest here so we can get to this outcome faster? So this is why I think like, if we as sellers operate in just a vacuum of the single thing, the project, the initiative that we impact we miss out on a much bigger CFO story. We have to know what those other priorities are and what those other big ticket things are because usually it's freeing up capacity to be able to focus on that that makes these things move through our um, through our pipeline faster. Yeah, especially now with the efficiency crunch. Like I just went through this combing through my budget every quarter. Is is it worth me spending this? What, you know, with the tiny marketing team, what do I actually have time to do? Um, so that's actually how I made the case to get a couple agencies to help us with a few things that I don't have the time to do. Um, so I love that point. It worked. Um, cool. And then one other thing, you know, I wanted to dive in on kind of specific to outbound email. Now that you're at Lavender, um, we were talking, you know, before we clicked record here about some of the outbound mistakes we made that we thought were great ideas at the time. (laughs) Uh, you have a lot of data over there and I saw on your LinkedIn, you mentioned a bunch. The one that kind of blew my mind was the not using questions and subject lines because for many years I did that thinking I was smart. Um, so any other kind of nuggets on how to actually stand out and get a reply, which is all our goal? Yeah. So I'll, there's so many I could talk about. I'll talk about two big ones. Um, I posted about this the other day. We always think about subject lines, right? Like we're, we were taught to care about that. And there was a move for a while where it was like, be as clever as possible. And I'm not saying that clever doesn't work, but Clever is becoming very easy to see. So there's a term um, one of our founders, Will Allred, came up with, which is called a mental spam trigger. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that is, is it's essentially a recognized pattern that a buyer doesn't even probably know they have, where they can look at an email before even reading the email, just look at the subject line and be like, that's either a marketing email or it's a cold email. So we have to be very mindful that when we send emails internally, they're boring. Like if my manager wants me to update my CRM, the title of the email is update CRM. It's not like 10 times your pipeline and then a whole case in the email of like why I should update the CRM. So it's like write like we write for the people that we are trying to engage with. So that's one. Um, The second thing is when we consider the preview text, this is something I screwed up all the time because I never knew I needed to care about it. Preview texts are like those first 50 characters in your email. And most of the time we wasted on Hey, Dustin, I hope you're well. Or yeah. I was looking at your yeah. website and, and then that's all we see. So if you actually look at your preview text in your outbox, you will probably see patterns where like you're not enticing someone to open the email. So instead, consider using that status, fro, uh, status quo buster as the start of your email. Like 
one that I would use all the time was the subject line with the CEO's name and comments. And if I just put like, and this is what we sell, I would have lost credibility. I probably would have mm-hmm. frustrated buyers. But instead, what I did in the first line would be like, you know, Will Balance was on the podcast, this podcast last week and talked about how Lavender was trying to do X. That is about me, the reader. It's not about you and your G2 awards and all your fancy stuff. It is about me. And so I'm going to be innately curious as to what do you know about me that I don't yet know you know. And I think that's the job, right? Like get the open. Don't try to sell the thing. Just get the open. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you mentioned some of those obvious ones where the spam trigger goes off in your mind. And yeah, anything with my company name plus another company name or can I ask you a question? Oh, quick question. Quick question. Yeah. (laughs) I'm guilty of doing that internally sometimes. So I need to wipe that one completely off the map. Um, But yeah, those, those are key ones. So you mentioned, you know, get the open, get them actually enticed. The next part is getting a reply, obviously. Right. Um, That's not easy. And I think it's because a lot of the replies we ask for are too much upfront, in my opinion, 15 minutes of my time nowadays. I don't have a lot of that to go around. Um, So any thoughts there on the CTA, how to actually get a reply in in the current environment we're in? Yeah. So first thing, I think leaders need to give their teams visibility into how many requests they get for 15 minutes. I remember when I was selling, I was like, it's just 15 minutes. Everybody's got 15 minutes, right? Because I didn't have the broader context. So step one is like, give your teams the broader context so that they see 50 asks for 15 minutes, make 15 minute asks so insufferable. So that's piece one. Second piece is we find that the sweet spot is zero to one questions in an email. I would look back at some emails that I wrote and I'm asking like four or five different questions because I'm trying to be smart and I'm trying to be customer centric. It's confusing. And so it's way easier to hit delete on that. So that's piece two. Um, Piece three is keep in mind that most executives are opening emails on their phone. And so what might look like a short email on your laptop is actually a big chunky block of text like that. So mobile optimization means spacing out your emails. You're basically earning the right to read every next line. Is it friendly on the eyes or does it look like a lot of work and effort to read it? That's piece three. Mm -hmm. And then piece four, and this is one that I, actually there's two more that I struggled with that I'll highlight. Um, Number four is um, reading level. I thought yeah. my goal was to sound really smart in emails, right? Let me show you all my big words that I can <laughs> use and my big long sentences. That's effort. Again, it's not friendly to a reader to have to sift through what do you mean by this, this, and this. So mm-hmm. um, between third and fifth grade reading level is your prime time. Um, and then the last one is tonality. Now, I came from Challenger. I thought highly informative emails were good. Like you are losing X amount of money because you do something this way. But logically, nobody likes to be talked at. And yep. we are only seeing a tiny sliver of the picture because we don't work there. So instead, unsure tonality actually proves in our data to play off much better. And unsure tonality could sound like something like, notice this, thought that maybe this was happening as a result, but I don't work there, you do. Would love to compare your observations against what we've seen. So you're not telling someone they have a problem when you first meet them. You're showing you've got you've done some work, you've got an idea, you've got a hypothesis, but you're framing it in such a way where you allow it to be corrected. Um, so those are five big ones. No, those are all good. And the last one, you know, intuitively, if you take yourself and put yourself in that shoes, it makes a ton of sense. I don't know how many times over the years I had sales training that said the opposite, like never question yourself, be authoritative. Yeah. Uh, but I agree. You know, we all think we're maybe smarter than we are and don't want to be told what to do. 
Um, so definitely a key point there. Cool. And then to switch, you know, one last topic I want to make sure we have time to get to. Uh, you mentioned former salesperson, although I would say a lot of the marketing stuff you do is, you know, the goal is still revenue and sales. So it's, it's all <laughs> yeah. related. Um, but something Lavender is doing a really good job of, in my opinion, is the community growth side, which you're working on. And I think a big part of that is LinkedIn and actually getting your people active, giving without asking. Um, there's just a lot going on there that honestly, you guys are just everywhere in my feed. So <laughs> we, we all want to do that. So what you don't mind, you know, you don't share all the secrets, but a little bit of thought there on your strategy for community growth and, and getting eyeballs. First of all, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, Second, it is absolutely led from the top. So if you talk to our founders about why they went all in on LinkedIn to begin it in the beginning, mm -hmm. it's because they were bootstrapped. And they were like, yeah. what are we going to buy ads? We can't afford that. We have to find a free way to engage with potential users. And so it was out of necessity in the beginning. But what they found is it was such an incredible way to build community because they weren't out there saying, buy lavender, buy lavender, buy lavender. They were out there saying, yo, like we all just went through COVID we now have to rely on emails much more than maybe we had to in the past. And the act and the act of doing an email is really hard. And it's a moment where you feel so not confident. And so let us share things that are going to make you feel more confident set hitting the send button. That is an emotional connection, right? Like cold mm -hmm. email stats is a rational thing. It's yeah. not like a, a warm and fuzzy feeling, but tapping into that factor of like, I don't feel confident is is deeply emotional. And I think like I was someone who admired um, Lavender from afar when I was at Challenger. I think that's what got me, right? Is like you're hitting on an emotional thing which creates the connection and then you're give, 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 giving. Even if you don't download Lavender, I had a guy that posted um, on a comment on a post I wrote the other day and he wrote, I just took these tips in the blog that you shared from Lavender and that doubled my reply rate. And I'm like, that's yeah. cool. You don't have, you can do it without lavender, do it. So I think that's kind of the secret sauce here is just give and you'd be surprised by how many people then want to engage. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a hidden, almost like a hidden referral funnel there that you don't realize. So there's certain companies I've never worked with, but I've read enough of their stuff. If one of my friends or colleagues asks me, who do you like, who do you know in the message tested, testing space? I've never used Winter, but I like their stuff and they make a lot of sense. So I'm going to refer them. And you can never measure that. So a lot of CEOs don't get that. And, you know, they kind of poo-poo all over the whole strategy and say it's not going to work. Um, but I think that's proof there. So you mentioned, you know, top-down giving. They just, you're relatively new still at, in the community yeah. growth role, right? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts there? Like, what are next steps of what you want to build? Yeah, so longer term, like, we've got a bunch of engineering things we're working on, like different integrations for Lavender right now. But longer term, what we want to do with community is build community in the product. Like, it was a, a sigh of relief on my side when I talked to the Wills and they're like, we want you to come on and build a community. I'm like, I can give you five names of people that have done this and we'll do this better. And they're like, we don't yeah. want to do what's been done, which I admire because we could start a Slack group today and get great traction in it because we're really fortunate to have really avid fans and users. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is build something in the sense of community where you're like you're tapping into the community while you're doing the job that we solve for, which is writing cold emails problem is that's going to take some time. So right now what I'm doing is I'm figuring out like, where do our customers and prospects, where do they already hang out? Because we don't need to yeah. pull them away from that. If they're getting what they need and we can add to the conversation, I spend so much of my time actually just going out to other communities and being like, hey, here's something new we learned on cold email. Mm -hmm. And you get stuff out of that because you're helping. And so I think community doesn't always have to be your own community. It can be how you show up in others. 
Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I had um, Kathleen Booth on a while back in one of our episodes, and she's killing it at doing that. She pops up in every community I'm in, giving value and being useful, and it obviously works. And you're talking uh, about it right now, right? It's like exactly yeah, so what you said before. It's proof. Yeah. So a couple more eyeballs there, hopefully for her. I like what they're doing <laughs> over at Pavilion. So, um, so Jen, thank you so much. I learned a lot here. I have a couple ideas. I'm going to roll up my sales team and honestly, it was just a fun conversation. So thank you. Yes. I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Cool. And if our listeners want to connect, learn more about you, Lavender, anything going on, where should they go? I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Jen Allen Knuth, <laughs> come find me. And then every Wednesday we do a Lavender LinkedIn Live. Where we take nice. a different topic related to cold email. So you can catch us there and, and see what we're teaching. Cool. So I'll include those links for our listeners. And Jen, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on this episode. My key takeaway this time is really the need now more than ever to flip your perspective and focus on the cost of inaction instead of you know that promised land at the end. It can be a hard thing to conceptualize sometimes and really think through, but I thought her analogy of focusing on the end goal of getting in shape for a wedding and how that might not be enough motivation, but how a doctor saying you're gonna have a heart attack is enough motivation. So you know, in short, find that heart attack and really drive that home. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and click subscribe or shoot us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, I'll be back every Tuesday.